Good morning. Continuing our studies in John's Gospel, today brings us to the second half of John chapter 4. And while you're all turning up on your phones, as I'm sure you are, I want to take a moment to reflect on the times that we live in. I personally can't remember a time when people have been angrier about politics, or so quick to call everyone who disagrees with them a fool. The things people say about Trump, about Brexit, about Corbyn, about the Tory victory in the last election, about our own independence referendum, on on both sides of all these divides, we seem to be unable to comprehend how anyone with a brain can think differently from ourselves. We, we happy few, the right-thinking people. Those who do think differently must be idiots. Those who lead them must be liars. I'd just like us to think this morning about this, this issue here in church, where perhaps it is a little bit easier to remember that Jesus taught us not to judge others, and that anyone who calls his brother a fool is in danger of hellfire. I must admit, our politicians mostly have been revealed recently as poor losers and even poorer winners. Our news media seem to be more intent on stirring up a story than they are on fostering rational debate. And all our friends on anti-social media seem to stir us up to outrage, but seldom stir us to prayer. Yet John's Gospel tells us about Jesus, the light who came into the darkness of this world. He who himself said, not only I am the light, but also you are the light of the world. So as ambassadors for Christ, as God's secret agents in his plan for worldwide reconciliation, how are we representing him in the political sphere? And that brings us in a very roundabout way to what I want to talk about today, which is... Witness, the power encounter, and saving faith. Last week we were looking at the apparently chance meeting between Jesus and the woman at the well. The first half of that story is all about a personal power encounter between one messed up woman and the word made flesh, the light of the world. As we read, Jesus did indeed shed light into the darkest recesses of her life, maybe things that she would have wanted to keep secret. And as they talked, perhaps she began to realize that he was more than just a prophet as she first identified him. Because as we pick up the narrative where Sarah left it in verse 25, she makes a remarkable leap of logic, or perhaps it's a step of faith. So John... Chapter 4, reading from verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking to a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or Why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and they were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, surely no one's brought him anything to eat. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say four months more and then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around. See how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the saviour of the world. When the two days were over, he went from that place to Galilee, where Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honour in the prophet's own country. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, so they had seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the festival, for they too had gone to the festival. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, yesterday, one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. As we unpack these verses together, I want to make repeated use of rather an old-fashioned, out-of-date phrase or word, which has distinctly Christian connotations for many and perhaps not always very happy ones. And I'm sorry if the term is problematic for you, but I want to use it for a very specific reason because it reminds us of our prime responsibility as believers in Christ. And perhaps just as importantly as reminding us of our responsibility, it reminds us of what is not our responsibility. That word is witness. In Acts 1 verse 8, in answer to a question about the coming of Jesus' kingdom, he says to the disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's very important that we understand this verse because it describes in a nutshell a great deal that is explained or assumed throughout the rest of the New Testament. First, we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in order to achieve the purpose that God has set before us. Trying to do it on our own strength is a mug's game. Second, the power is given so that we can be witnesses. 
In other words, we, whether we experience gifts of healing or miracles or prophecy, wisdom or anything else through the Holy Spirit, the purpose is that we may be faithful witnesses to our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, we're called primarily to be witnesses, not preachers, not healers, not teachers, not evangelists. The gifts of the Spirit are the demonstrations of God's wisdom and power. They're not in themselves, an end in themselves. No more are the, the fruit of the Spirit, those characteristics of God that we can experience and enjoy in our own lives. Fourth, we are to be witnesses first to our own people, Judea and uh, Jerusalem and Judea, the people where we are, but then also to people who are not like us, people who are elsewhere, the Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And we could say a lot more about Acts 1 verse 8 and related scriptures, but today I just want to use it as a key to unlock our understanding of the passage in John that we want to study. Because the back end of John chapter 4, at least on this reading, seems to me to be all about that old-fashioned word, witness. First, the reality of witness. Then the reward of witness. Then the result of witness, and finally the re repercussions of witness. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, his was a life of show and tell. He spoke about the kingdom, and he demonstrated the power of the kingdom. As we saw years ago in our studies of Matthew, this was a tick-tock rhythm. Tick, preach, talk, heal. Tick, talk, preach, heal, preach, heal. And this approach applied equally to the way that he trained his disciples as well. Those that he later commissioned as his witnesses in Acts 1 verse 8 were here already learning lessons about the nature of their witness, both from Jesus' words and also from his actions. So number one, the reality of witness, verses 25 to 30. Of course, it's quite possible that the woman is just giving Jesus the brush off when she starts talking about the Messiah. He's been deliberately undercutting the great religious division in her thinking between the Samaritan and the Judean. The northern tribes of Israel, who she identifies with, worship in Mount Gerizim, whereas the Judeans or Jews worship in Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. But Jesus says that day is nearly done. It's soon going to be time to worship God in spirit and truth. And all those old distinctions are going to fall away. So perhaps our response in verse 25 is no more than, yeah, right, I'm waiting for the Messiah to sort out all that stuff. But personally, I see something more in her response. I see an active engagement with the possibility that Samaritan and Jew might one day worship together, that the divided kingdom of Israel would finally be restored as it was in King David's time. And of course, to their mentality, that could only happen when the heir of David, the Messiah, the priest and king who was coming, would be revealed as king. That must be the time that Jesus is referring to. I wonder if she mentions it because she's already seeing the possibility that she might be talking to the fulfillment of all those ancient promises. Because she doesn't argue with Jesus or mock him when he says, I am he. No, she goes straight back to town and begs people to come and see someone who might indeed be the Messiah. 
I think this is a good example of the reality of witness. We don't know what, ex- what words exactly she used, but from what John tells us, we know that there were two elements to it. One was simply to relate her own experience, and the other was to invite people to come and see for themselves. And basically, that's all that's asked of us as believers, that we tell of our own encounter with Jesus and that we invite others to come and see for themselves. Long philosophical discussions may be fun or they may be not fun. But in the end, it's your own story that's the only thing people can't actively disagree with. And in the end, someone coming to faith is not going to depend on your experience of Jesus, but on their own experience of him. The way Jesus taught us to bear witness was to show and tell, preach and heal. And all the gifts of the Spirit, as well as the evidence of a life changed by him, will help us to bear testimony to the truth of what we're saying. Even at this point, before saying that he is the Christ, Jesus has used a gift of the Spirit, a word of knowledge, remember, to unpack the woman's whole life up to that point, as if he'd known her for years. One of the functions of a witness in a court case may be to identify property or maybe a weapon. And in the various imaginary courts that attempt to judge the truth of our gospel, our gifts and our own changed lives have already been entered into evidence as exhibits A and B. All we have to do is to identify them as coming from Jesus. I will tell you, one day, maybe over a beer somewhere, a wonderful story I have about uh, items brought into evidence. Not today. Another function of a witness is sometimes to identify a person. Perhaps it's the victim of a crime or perhaps it's the perpetrator. So like the woman at the well, one of our, our essential functions as witnesses is to identify Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Yes, it's him, nobody else. We point to him as the one who is responsible for our changed life, as the giver of that amazing gift of wisdom or healing or whatever it was. And much has been made at times by the fact in verse 28 that the woman left her water pot behind as she returned to town. Uh, Much of it pretty fanciful. All I want to say about it is that sometimes opportunities for witness come unexpectedly. She went to the well to draw water but her visit turned out to be about something else altogether. Leaving her water pot shows she was prepared to change her plan, as we must learn to, in response to the unexpected opportunities for witness that come our way. Number two, the reward of witness, verses 31 to 38. Obviously it took a little time for the townspeople to gather and come out to see Jesus, and while this was happening, the disciples, probably between mouthfuls, I should think, kept saying to Jesus, "Mm, come on, Rabbi, mm, eat something, for it's all gone. If I was there, it would be all gone. They're mystified by his cryptic reply that he has other food that they don't know about. But Jesus replies that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. And of course, this reference to food is not meant entirely literally. We we know that Jesus had a physical body that needed to eat, that, uh, that actually got tired as we read it in verse 6. Jesus met the woman at the well because he was sitting there. And he was only sitting there because he was tired. We aren't actually told, it's quite interesting, we aren't told why he's any more tired than the rest of the disciples. They'd had the same walk. 
but he was. Or maybe he just didn't care so much about what was for lunch. Perhaps he was up early praying, as was his habit, and they hadn't been. Or it might just have been that he was exhausted from answering their incessant questions all along the way and listening to their pitiful arguments about who was greatest. We may never know. What we do know is that he found something entirely refreshing, even sustaining, in his conversation with this Samaritan woman and in the anticipation of the conversations he was about to have with her townsfolk. But as he begins to talk about it in terms of finishing the Father's work, he can't resist just teaching the disciples something about the rewards for witness. In a near-subsistence farming economy, such as many in Jesus' day knew, the link between a good harvest and enough food on the table was very clear. And I'm sure that many of our storehouse clients have a much better idea than most of us how close is the link between the food we eat and our wage packet or lack of one. Jesus jumps seamlessly from food, verse 34, to harvest, verse 35, to wages, verse 36. The food comes from the harvest, but it also comes from the harvester's wage packet. So when Jesus speaks of his food being his obedience to the Father, he not only means that it is restorative and life-giving in an emotional sense here and now, he also means, verse 36, that it feeds eternal life rather than earthly life. In verse 34, he wants to understand, I think, that some of the rewards for witness are felt immediately and physically, just as he himself no longer feels exhausted but ready for an afternoon of witness or preaching to the kingdom, uh, preaching the kingdom to this town. He spent a whole morning with the disciples and he felt dead on his feet. But after a few minutes witnessing to a Samaritan, he's full of beans again. I don't know how many Samaritans there are in St. Andrews this afternoon, but there's certainly plenty of people who don't share our faith. If you're feeling a bit jaded in your faith, why not try a bit of woman at the well therapy? But in verse 36, he's speaking about another reward, something spiritual and eternal, when he says that the reaper is getting paid already and gathering fruit for eternal life. We all struggle with the idea of spiritual rewards, but it's all over Jesus' teaching, so we better get used to the idea. The faithful witness is rewarded with refreshment, with success in her work, and she's rewarded personally in eternity as well. And in verses 35 and 37, Jesus tells us something else, which I find particularly rewarding. We don't even have to do the whole job ourselves. Somebody else has already plowed the field, sown the seed, weeded and watered the crop. All we have to do is reap it and take the reward. There's no one we meet who hasn't already heard or seen or felt or experienced something that will help them to understand the gospel Jesus Christ. And if we are open to the leading of the Holy Spirit and prepared to leave our water pots at the well and talk to them, then we'll find them. This is the reality and the reward of witness. Number three, the result of witness, verses 39 to 42. These verses speak first of the initial result, but they end with the final result. The major shift which has to take place and does so in only two days, 
and which affected much of the town, is from the verse 39 position to the verse 42 position. In verse 39, they have faith because of what the woman said. In verse 42, they have faith of their own. They know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. For those of us who've been brought up in the Christian tradition, it can be easy, as I myself did, to bimble along through life believing in the facts of our faith without ever encountering Jesus personally. At uh, least for me, when I did, it was transformative. Everything suddenly either fell apart or fell into place. Looking back, I'd say I'd always believed what I believe now in the most basic terms. I believed I was a sinner. That was pretty obvious. I believed that Jesus, the saviour of the world, had taken my sin upon himself so that I could be right with God and have eternal life. I've always believed that as a matter of fact. But when I met Jesus and committed my life to following him, I knew he had saved me in a way I'd never known before. My life actually began to change. If I'm honest, that process is taking a bit longer than I thought. I've become resigned to the fact that I'll always be in Jesus' therapy, that I've engaged in a lifelong learning process. But at least I know I'm on the right track because I'm following in the footsteps of the light of the world. In chapter 1, we read that to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. But in my experience, and in these verses, there's believing and there's believing. It's worth asking ourselves, do we believe because someone else said so? Or do we believe because we've met Jesus face to face? For every one of us, the Samaritan woman's simple invitation still stands. Come and see. The result of witness mustn't stop at people believing because we say so, excellent as that is. It has to progress to a transforming personal encounter with Jesus himself. Part of our witness, apart from telling our own story, must be pointing to Christ and saying, come and see for yourself. And as an aside, if there's anything we can change in our home groups or as a church meeting on Sundays that would make it easier for you to invite your friends to come and see, the leaders are always opening to hear about it. Our watchword, as Sarah was saying last week, is come as you are, don't stay as you are. If we're really doing our job in our gatherings, large and small, we should be welcoming to everybody, but also challenging to everybody. Welcoming them to come as they are and challenging them to not stay as they are. The gospel Jesus preached is not just the kingdom is here, but repent for the kingdom is here. So that's a brief survey of the reality of witness and the reward and the result witness but it doesn't end there number four the repercussions of witness verses 43 to 54 we don't know the eventual outcome of jesus witness in that town in samaria though it's very noticeable in acts chapter 8 what a favorable reception the gospel got in samaria after the ascension of jesus but it's safe to say that even beyond the results that we've just considered in the lives of those we witness to, our witness will often have wider repercussions. As the old song puts it, one shall tell another and he shall tell his friend. 
the very elderly among us can remember them. Jesus only witnessed, don't sing along, please. Uh, Jesus only witnessed to the one woman in the first place. But as a result of her witness, the whole town came out to see him. And many of them also went away as witnesses themselves. In this final section, we see the general repercussions in Galilee, verse 45, of Jesus' witness in Jerusalem at the feast. A prophet might not be honored in his own home country, as verse 44 says, but Jesus was welcomed home with open arms on account of what had happened in Jerusalem. And we see also the specific repercussions in the life of one individual, which is the royal official. Now, it's not clear whether he worked in Cana and had a family home in Capernaum, which is some 38 kilometers away by road, or whether he made the trek over especially to intercept Jesus. The way it reads, as far as I can see, suggests the former. But either way, it is in Cana that they meet, where Jesus had made the water into wine. In face of his desperate plea to come and heal his dying son, Jesus' reply in verse 48 looks terse, bordering on the brutal. But then there's no time to waste, possibly not even time to make the long journey between the two towns. The official gets brought up short, face to face, with issues of faith and unbelief, death and life. If he'd had no faith, he surely wouldn't have come to Jesus in the first place. But I notice that people, even people with no faith at all often pray when they're an extremist, when they've run out of options. So we don't really know his state of mind as he approaches Jesus. In fact, though it must have made him think, we still don't know how much he believed after this apparent rebuff. No, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. But his desperate plea, Sir, please come before my son dies, doesn't fall on deaf ears. We read elsewhere, don't we, of Jesus' compassion on people as he heals them. And we read in 1 John 3, in the words of the same author, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So either out of compassion for the man or out of his desire to complete the works of the Father and destroy the works of the devil, or both, Jesus says, on you go, your son's going to live. And amazingly, this official believes him and just heads for home. And here we find another strong indication that there's believing and there's believing. Because in verse 50, he believes the word that Jesus spoke to him, i.e. his son's going to live. That's just faith that something is going to happen. But in verse 53, when he realizes that the moment Jesus spoke the word was the moment his son began to get better, he and his whole household believed. There's believing and believing. Up to this point, as he makes his desperate journey over the hills to see if his faith has been rewarded, he only has faith that. Faith that something's going to happen. Now he has faith in. Faith in Jesus, faith that Jesus is who he says. I once had a friend who uh, admired my faith. And as I pressed him on it, it became clear that he thought faith was powerful, but it didn't much matter what you had faith in. What followed was not a good witness on my part, but I did manage to persuade him with a few simple examples that it really did matter what you put your faith in. It was a good argument, and I won it, but I've always regretted winning an argument when I might have won a soul. Maybe if I'd 
witnessed rather than arguing, it would have been more effective. There are various kinds of faith, as this passage shows. Not every kind of faith is saving faith. The townspeople in Samaria had to move from the faith that came merely from hearing about Jesus to the faith that comes from meeting Jesus. And this official, too, had to move from faith that Jesus will heal his son, a faith that sprang from what others had said about the power encounters they had had, to the faith that comes from a personal power encounter with Jesus, the life-changing encounter of lifelong devotion. As the townsfolk discovered, faith that springs from someone else's power encounter only gets you so far. It gets you to the point where you're prepared to meet with Jesus. But each one of us, like Paul on the road to Damascus, or Thomas meeting the risen Christ, or Peter at the lakeside with the astonishing catch of fish, maybe like Nebuchadnezzar seeing the fourth man in the burning fiery furnace, or Moses at the burning bush, or Jacob in his midnight, midnight wrestling match. Each one of us really needs his or her own power <coughs> encounter with Jesus. Because when we meet him in person and in power, there's no turning back from that point. And to bring us back full circle again to Acts 1 verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we will receive power to give witness to what he has done and to who he is. This morning the Lord offers us two kinds of power encounter with him. One is the action of the Holy Spirit on us to heal our bodies and minds, to forgive our sins, to break our bad habits and drive out our demons, to change our hearts and lives forever. And the other is the action of the Holy Spirit in us to empower us to be his witnesses. There's no one in this room, in this town, in this world, who doesn't need one or other of those power encounters, or both. And I can't think of anything more important either. So why don't you stand and we'll pray for the Holy Spirit to come. Lord, just hearing the coughs in this room, we see the need for some power encounters with you. So I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and make yourself more real among us. Lord Jesus, stand among us in your risen power. Let us know your kingdom this morning. We say your kingdom come, your will be done in this room as it is in heaven. So come Holy Spirit and fill your servants with power that we may heal the sick, raise those who are spiritually dead, break the bad habits that uh, ruin our lives, set us free and empower us to be witnesses for you in this world. Lord, as we lay hands on each other and pray, may it be more than just us praying. May it be us as your ambassadors, acting in your power, the power of your spirit, to release healing and wholeness and faith and dedication in your name.
So come, Lord.